Okay, so this is our discussion of Simon Dong's individuation in the light of notions of form and information. We're continuing with part two, chapter one. Um, I don't remember what section we're on, but uh, in chapter one of part two, uh, talking about vital individuation. Last week we saw, we had some discussion of different degrees of individuation in living beings. Um, so you can have certain um, invertebrates that live in colony forms that um, share a circulatory system and um, in other ways are undifferentiated, that they, they um, are not split up into individuals uh, in the same way as vertebrates and other uh, organisms are, but there's still this um, sort of remainder of individuality, even in the colony form, insofar as the births and deaths of these sponges or whatever corals are are not synchronized. So you have different, uh, within the colony, the, the different corals will be born and die independently of each other. And Simon Dom also talks about some types of organisms that, that have alternate forms um, as either a colony form or an individual form. They live in a colony state and then an individual is detached from that colony and floats around and moves away from the existing colony and then it will found a new colony and uh, and then reproduce through budding. So this this notion of the individual as being as the sort of transmission between one colony and another is a, is a key notion in this section of the book. So there's the individual has this reproductive role. So they they serve as the, the equivalent of the seed crystal that we saw in the first part in forming a new structure, a new colony. And and so in what Simon Don calls the higher organisms, um, the ones that are more individualized, this individual state uh, is not just presence you know, during that reproductive phase, but uh, it persists throughout the lifespan of the individual. So in, in vertebrates, for example, the individuated state is like the, the reproductive form of the, the jellyfish just um, extended throughout the lifespan of the individual and there's no colony form anymore. So, uh, and then we we got to close to the end of the subsection where Simon Don introduces um, a distinction between instincts and drives. Sorry, what is the translation? Tendencies and drives, where yeah, tendencies are relative to the individual insofar as it uh, acts as a, a transmission through time, and drives will be related to the the individual um, insofar as they're incorporated into the of the the broader grouping right and, and so angus has asked the question in the chat um is is anyone setting up a correspondence between tendencies and the inter-individual societal on the one hand and drives in the trans individual on the other i'm not sure that it lines up quite the right way for that to work yeah we we saw uh last week as well we saw this distinction between three levels or three different types of relationships between individuals. So you have the inter-individual, which uh, is, uh, comes about through or, or between already existing individuals. And uh, so the, I guess the, 
example we can think of for that would be something like uh, economic exchange, which uh, uh, already presupposes individuals. And then society, in the, the sense that Simonon wants to use this term, has to do with differentiation into specialized roles. And so he's, I think, primarily thinking of insect societies, like bees or termites, uh, where, where you have individuals specialized in particular functions, like you have uh, worker bees and, and queen bees, for example, that have specialized functions. And uh, human societies also have some sort of equivalent of this insofar as we have a division of labor and specialization of functions within a society. But then there's this third term, which is a little bit mysterious, but um, is the one that's specific to Simondon, is the trans-individual, which um, has to do with a, a collective individuation so that it's not it's not between existing individuals and it's not a differentiation into specialized roles, but it's a sort of formation of a collective, um, which is a, a process of individuation. So all that is to say that there's a, a tripartite distinction between the those three forms of relationship between individuals, the the inter-individual, the societal, and the the trans-individual. And I don't think it maps on directly to this correspondence or, or, or to this distinction between tendencies and drives. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, and yes, uh, yeah, so Angus was posted in the chat about this thanatological aspect of the individual. And this is something that, uh, again, we saw last week that one of the essential properties of an individual is its capacity to, to die, essentially. Um, whereas the colony is potentially immortal and uh, in unicellular organisms, they divide and the lineage of the, the dividing cells is potentially immortal. In uh, organisms that are individuated in the proper sense, there's a, a determinate lifespan for that individual. They, they're born and, uh, and then they die at a a certain point and that capacity to to die is part of what makes up an individual and i mentioned last time about how there's a on the surface a similar thesis in heidegger um about how um death is, is and the finitude of dasein is a uh, part of what makes up the individuality of dasein but here for simon don the uh that thesis is a completely different is articulated in a completely different way um, because it's a biological individuation that we're talking about, not something like an existential individuation. So yeah, on the question of, of how that connects to the the drive and tendency distinction, yeah. So he's going to well, I guess we can wait till we see that uh, in the next little bit when we start reading. But he's going to he's going to talk about the way that the tendencies right the tendencies belong to the everyday life and the drives belong to this individuated condition or the the status of the individual as a reproductive I don't know potency or something like that and uh, and so they're connected to the, the capacity of an individual to die. Uh, the, so drives are, are related to this thanatological aspect of, of the individual. Is my microphone destroyed? Um, it's distorted, but comprehensible. Okay. I was just going to ask, based on the quotes I pasted above, if because um, to me, that's how I was thinking of it, that it, it, I would ask Angus's question, but in reverse, that because to me, because of the thanatological aspect of the drives, that I don't see how the drives in themselves would correspond neatly with the trans individual when especially when he says that you know the two limits sort of are internal to the anything that is individuated in our sort of level or of magnitude or our reality 
in that whenever he uses inter, like he talked about inter-elementary earlier in the text, like that kind of corresponds to when we were talking about that, like discrete things, um, either like corpuscles or, or things that can sort of be or not be seemingly. And that intra implies more of the, the metastable kind of relationship. So like intra-individual being the trans-individual as a some kind of virtual collectivity or whole or something. So if, if I don't know, maybe we'll find out as we read, but that because the other thing that you mentioned both in this, I think this time in, in the lesson from last time that I listened to was the whole point about you can't look at the vital as the material for the form, which is the psyche, because then you end up into kind of just hylomorphism all over again. So you have to see what the higher order being is doing in the process of their psyche being individuated or the transductive operation there, not as going back to the form of basic life giving forces and then giving them a more complex, I don't know, expression, but uh, I think he uses the phrase returning to an actually more primitive form, a uh, more primitive potential that that pre-individual uh, reality and, and further individuating from that, which to me that would imply that that's not, that. I mean, if, all the, if they're always mixed, that's fine, but that that couldn't be purely based on the drives, because that sort of seems to be already at the point of there's even a sort of a critique of need there in the section that we read last time. But. Yeah, there, there was that discussion of uh, the way that um, we shouldn't understand the psyche as a, a form sort of uh, floating above or imposed on the, the body as matter. Yeah, so that, that reproduces the, the hylomorphic schema that Simone was trying to get away from so that we have to understand uh, the psyche as um, a further process of individuation after, after the vital individuation has, has occurred. Because it's a process of individuation, it has to go back to the pre-individual. It has to sort of re-individuate the, the organism that is already individuated as a living being. And so this has to do with the notion of a, a problem uh, or a individuation, psychic individuation in particular, as an invention or a, a discovery of a, a new dimension that solves the problem and that uh, resolves this disparation um, or this internal difference. And in, in the analogy there is with binocular vision where you have this disparation of the retinal images and the uh, invention of a dimension of depth as as the solution to that problem of the disparation. But yeah, I think we'll see in the next couple pages more um, uh, more explanation of this distinction between drives and tendencies. So uh, let's get into the text and uh, and see if that answers our, our questions. So I can start reading. I'll read a page or so and then we'll discuss. Freud's doctrine does not distinguish between drives and tendencies clearly enough. The doctrine seems to consider the individual univocally, and although it distinguishes between a certain number of zones in the individual from the structural and dynamic point of view, it leaves behind the idea that the individual can manage a complete integration through the construction of the superego, as if the being could discover a condition of absolute unity in the passage to the act of its virtualities, since it is too hylomorphic this doctrine cannot account for an essential duality in the individual except by resorting to an inhibiting alienation, insofar as the report to the species cannot be conceived except as an inclusion of the individual. But Aristotelian entelechy cannot account for the full sense of the individual and leaves out the properly instinctual aspect through which the individual is a transduction that takes place and not a virtuality that is actualized. 
even if it must be said that the metaphysical is still physiological, we must recognize the aspect of the individual's duality and characterize through its transcommunal functioning this existence of instinctual drives. The thanatological nature of the individual is incompatible with everyday tendencies, which can conceal this nature or defer its manifest existence but cannot annihilate it. This is why a psychical analysis must take into account the complementary nature of the tendencies and drives in the being that we call individual, a being which, in all individuated species, is in fact a mixture of vital continuity and instinctual transcommunal singularity. The two natures that classical moralists find in man are neither an artifact nor the translation of a mythological creationist dogma into the framework of current observation. In fact, the easiness here would be on the side of the biological monism of the tendencies, according to an operative thought that believes to have done enough by defining the individual as a non-analyzable being that cannot be the object of consciousness except through its inclusion in the species. Aristotle's doctrine, which is the prototype for all vitalisms, in fact arises from an interpretation of life oriented around superior, i.e. totally individuated species. This doctrine would not otherwise it would not be otherwise in a time when so-called inferior species were very difficult to observe. Aristotle takes into account certain species of cilenterates and worms, but mainly to discuss the characteristics of the soul's inherence to the body according to totality or part by part. For example, in ringed worms, which can regenerate after an accidental segmentation, both segments of which continue to live on. In fact, the, the model of living beings is the, in the superior form, and insofar as beings do not want to be poorly governed, the aspiration of all beings toward a single form leads Aristotle to consider the superior forms before all else. It is not vitalism, properly speaking, that has led to the confusion of drives and tendencies, but a vitalism founded on a partial inspection of life that puts more value on the forms closest to the human species, by constituting a de facto anthropocentrism more so than a veritable vitalism. Um, yeah, so we have here, uh, this is building on what we ended with last week about the way that uh, uh, introducing this distinction between tendencies and drives. So the, the tendencies as the, um, the incorporation of the individual within um, something like everyday life or within the, the, the group um, uh, belonging to the species. And uh, the drives um, are the, the correspond to the, the aspect of the individual as, um, as what what goes between those uh, groupings or or um, in correspondence to the the individual state of the jellyfish um, in between the two colony states. So the drive corresponds to that aspect of the individual rather than the, uh, its incorporation into the group. And he sort of briefly here criticizes Freud uh, and psychoanalysis on the grounds that it doesn't distinguish between drives and tendencies clearly enough. It, it, psychoanalysis doesn't have um, anything, any distinction that, that maps onto this one um, in which the incorporation into the community and, and um, everyday life would be distinguished from drives that, uh, that corresponds to the, the reproductive and uh, uh, thanatological aspect of the individual. We instead, in uh, in Freud's doctrine, we have something like a distinction within the the drives between the um, between the pleasure principle and the the death drive, or um, between the the reproductive and the thanatological aspects of the individual. And 
what what uh, Simon Dome points to here is the idea that, or is the is that in Freud's doctrine, um, this what what Simon Dome calls this essential duality in the individual. So the this duality between tendencies and drives, Freud can only account for it um, by resorting to an inhibiting alienation. So that uh, in in psychoanalysis, the um, the there's something like the uh, repression of drives um, in order for an individual to be incorporated into a society. They have to repress um, drives um, that that would be uh, negative um, or that would be uh, impair social uh, harmony or interaction or, or whatever term you want to use. So it's always... Um, there's always an externality to uh, to that second term. The drives themselves uh, are are sort of homogenous, and it's only the the external um, force of of the social that that requires an individual to repress drives. Um, and and so Simon Don wants to give a a more um, an account of that distinction that that is not uh, external to the individual. Uh, so within the individual, uh, there this distinction is already present, and it's not it's sort of imported from uh, society. Um, and then we have this kind of strange bit on vitalism, um, where um, Simon Don suggests that or or states that um, Aristotle's doctrine is the prototype for all vitalisms. Um, and he he's somewhat critical of vitalism here, but he also seems to be, he also seems to be, uh, it's a sort of nuanced criticism in the sense that he, he criticizes not vitalism as such, but um, a certain uh, misuse of vitalism, I guess, um, where, um, so what, what he's objecting to is uh, how Aristotle's doctrine is uh, focused on um, the the higher organisms, so the ones that are more individuated, because in well partly because at his time it was um, especially difficult to observe the less individuated organisms um, that you know live underwater or are microscopic and and so on. Um, so that it's only uh, with contemporary technology that we're able to actually study these organisms. And we can see that uh, individuation is not, uh, is not an essential characteristic of, of living beings, um, or uh, it's a, at least a, a relative characteristic in the sense that the degree of individuation is, is um, different in different kinds of living beings. And uh, and so Aristotle doesn't really he he takes um, um, the the so-called superior forms uh, of these totally individuated beings as the the model and and he thinks of other organisms as being uh, in some sense defective or or not living up to that model and and so it's this kind of vitalism um, so a vitalism that is uh, sort of anthropocentric um, or more generally centered on these uh, totally individuated organisms uh, is this kind of vitalism that leads to a confusion of drives and tendencies. But uh, Simon Do seems to leave open the possibility here of uh, a vitalism that would not be that would not be uh, subject to this confusion uh, because it wouldn't 
focus on the totally individuated in, uh, organisms. Um, you're asking for a, a summary of what uh, tendency means, or or what? Yeah. yeah okay. Um, yeah. So the the tendency um, is the I guess the behavior of the organism or the the functioning of the organism insofar as it's incorporated into the the grouping uh, of that organism. So um, the the sort of paradigm that Simon Don is thinking of here is the colony state of the um, the way that the jellyfish has its um, its um, individual state that is free floating, uh, and then it also has this colony form um, that is. Uh, rooted and, and grows by um, budding rather than um, reproducing sexually. So yeah, the tendency corresponds to that colony stage. Um, and then in, in organism, organisms that don't have um, a colony stage, uh, it would correspond to the uh, integration into the group and into um, like everyday life of the organism and the way that it goes about getting food and avoiding predators and so on. And then drives, in contrast, have to do with that, or they correspond to the individual state of the jellyfish. And uh, in in organisms that don't have that colony state, the the drives correspond to the reproductive capacity of the individual. Uh, so the way that it the individual serves as a, a, a sort of transmission um, from one generation to the next. Um, and the way that the individual can uh, can die um, can uh, so in in reproducing, it produces a, a distinct individual from itself rather than just continuing its existence in a new form like in uh, unicellular organisms that that just divide and are potentially immortal. And um, so there's also the distinction between tendencies and drives also also brings about um, um, as a, a sort of consequence, there's the tendencies are uh, shared between individuals, um, and there can be some sort of harmony of tendencies between individuals, so that for a variety of different species, there is um, some sort of gregarious tendency or something like that. Like they will tend to want to be with other individuals of the same species and form some sort of social grouping, um, whereas the drives are. Um, are opposed to the the social organization, so they they um, they have to do with the the reproductive capacity of the individual, um, and so they um, they sort of uh, disrupt the social organization, uh, and so they have their the sort of um, they present a certain danger to the social organization and to the existing social order. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next um, page if someone else would like to read from furthermore of idealism. Furthermore, a vitalism that ignores the distinction between functions relative to the tendencies and those relative to the drives cannot establish a difference between functions in themselves and the structural dynamisms that allow for the operation of these functions by maintaining the stability of vital characteristics. Thus, quote-unquote, the death drive cannot be considered symmetrical with the life drive. Instead, the death drive is the dynamic limit of the operation of the life drive and is not another drive. It appears as the mark of a temporal threshold beyond which this positive drive no longer operates, either because the transductive role of the isolated individual is achieved or because it is complete, or because it has failed and because the pure individual's quantum of duration has been exhausted. It marks the end of the pure individual's dynamism. 
the tendency for beings to persevere in their being in the sense of the Spinoza's conatus pertains to an instinctual ensemble that leads to that leads to the quote-unquote death drive. It is in this sense that a relation of the reproduct, reproductive drive and the death drive can be discovered since they are functionally homogeneous. Conversely, the reproductive drive and the death drive are heterogeneous with respect to the different tendencies, which are tendencies of continuity and socially integrable reality. In superior species, the alternative alternation of the individual stage and the colony stage is replaced by the simultaneity of individual life and society, something which complicates the individual by placing it in a twofold bundle of individual drive and social tendencies functions. Yeah, so we, we have, um, so here he, he points to the way that um, uh, Freud's death drive um, is on the one hand, is opposed to the to the the pleasure principle or the the reproductive drive, as Simon Dome calls it here. But then, on the other hand, they're um, they're related to each other as well. Um, so Freud, uh, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, uh, characterizes the death drive as being um, a sort of uh, effort of the organism to to return to uh, the non-living state through its own means. Um, so there's a, a sort of resistance to an external death, um, to external um, dangers, but uh, it, it's in the service of uh, sort of returning to non-living state, uh, non-living matter through its own uh, internal evolution or internal development. Um, so the uh, a living being, um, has this inherent um, uh, tendency towards uh, towards death in a in its internal development. Yeah, but so so because um, because it has this internal drive towards um, towards its own uh, end, it uh, it resists external um, forces that would tend to bring about its death um, prematurely. So the, the, the sort of life side and the death side are, are interlinked with each other um, uh, of this drive. Uh, and, um, and so the, the, the pleasure principle and the, um, the death drive are, even though they're opposed to each other, they're uh, related to each other at the same time. And so there's, so Simon Don argues that these two drives for Freud are um, homogenous, uh, they they uh, they have he he puts those two drives on one side uh, with the um, with the the individual role uh, the role of the individual as a a reproductive um, capacity and uh, as a, a being that is capable of dying um, so he puts those two on one side and then. Um, the, the role of the individual or the function of the individual as a member of a, a social group uh, he puts on the other side. And then he, he introduces the idea that um, in uh, more individuated species, the ones that he characterizes as superior, we have, instead of having an alternation of the, an individual stage and a colony stage, we have um, a simultaneity of these two functions so that we have tendencies and drives operating at the same time. And so this individual uh, in, in this um, kind of organism 
has a, a greater complexity. Um, it's it's this double bundle of functions that are um, both individual and social, uh, rather than one in alternation with another. Um, and then there's also there's um, the footnote uh, 14, which um, is is worth pointing pointing to. Um, so that he he suggests that what we call the superior animals would arise from the um, neodonization of inferior species, um, so in, in which the stage of individual life corresponds to the function of amplificative reproduction, whereas um, the stage of life in colonies corresponds to the continuous homeostatic aspect. And uh, so the two... Um, the two tendencies, uh, sorry, the two um, functions of tendencies and, and drives are incorporated in the individual because the individual in these um, so-called superior species is uh, sort of preserves that larval stage throughout its lifespan um, or that um, reproductive stage. Um, so rather than having a, an individual stage that then forms a colony, um, that individual stage survives, and uh, and that sort of ju juvenile stage um, is preserved throughout the lifespan of the individual. Um, yeah, and there's so there's a distinction between individuals and organs um, in a couple pages earlier um, when he's talking about the uh, the colonies of, of corals and and other similar organisms, where so in the colony you have. Uh, some sort of differentiation of um, the different um, pseudo-individuals. Um, so you have certain pseudo-individuals that, that specialize in defense of the colony and others that specialize in uh, reproduction and others that specialize in uh, uh, nutrition and so on. And so to some extent, they would correspond to organs of a, a larger individual. But the distinction that Simon Dong makes is that... Um, the because they can be born and die in a, an unsynchronized manner they they don't make up an individual uh, because um, in an individual in the proper sense we um, the organs don't uh, die independently of the of the uh, organism as a whole so in a, in an individual you have three layers you have the the, the level of the individual you have the level of the organs and then you have the level of the cells within the organs, which do um, die and uh, they're, they're born and die uh, independently of the organism as a whole. Whereas in the case of the colony, you just have the the individuals uh, or the the quasi individuals um, that make up the colony. You'd only have two layers rather than three. So yeah, that's that's the distinction between uh, individuals and organs. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next subsection and read a page or so if someone else would like to read. Subsection 2, the individual as polarity, functions of internal genesis and of external genesis. The method that emerges from these preliminary considerations requires us not to be primarily preoccupied with hierarchically organizing the levels of vital systems, but to distinguish them in order to see what the functional equivalences are that allow for vital reality to be grasped throughout these different systems by developing the whole range of vital systems instead of classifying them in order to hierarchize them. According to our initial hypothesis, life is deployed through transfer and neotonization, 
more than a continuous or dialectical progress, evolution is a transaction. Vital functions should be studied according to a method of equivalence that posits the principle by which there can be an equivalence of structures and functional activities. From pre-individual forms to individualized forms, relations of equivalence can be revealed by passing through the mixed forms that include alternating individuality and trans-individuality according to the interior or exterior conditions of life. On the other hand, it should be supposed that there is a relative interdependence of species which makes a hierarchization quite abstract, at least when it only considers the anatomophysiological characteristics of the individual. A rational study of species would have to integrate a sociology for each species. Um, certainly, it is difficult to somewhat abstractly define a method for the study of vital individuation. However, it seems that this hypothesis of functional duality makes it possible to account for two types of relations and two kinds of limits discovered in the individual. In a first sense, the individual can be treated as a particular fragmentary being, an actual member of a species, a detachable or not currently detachable fragment of a colony. In a second sense, the individual is what is capable of transmitting the life of the species and constitutes the depository of specific characteristics, even if it should never be called upon to actualize them in itself. As a carrier of virtualities which do not necessarily take on a sense of actuality for it, it is limited both in space and time. It thereby constitutes a quantum of time for vital activity, and its temporal limit is essential to its function of relation. Often this individual is free in space since it guarantees the transportation of the specific seeds of the species, and the counterpart to its temporal brevity is its extreme spatial mobility. According to the first form of existence, on the contrary, the individual is a fragment of a currently existing whole in which it is inserted and which limits it spatially as a fragmentary being. Uh, limits it spatially. As a fragmentary being, the individual possesses a structure that allows it to grow. It is polarized inside itself, and its organization allows it to incorporate elementary matter either through autotrophy or by starting from already elaborated substances. The individual as a fragmentary being possesses a certain corporeal schema according to which it grows through differentiation and specialization, which determine the parts during their progressive growth starting from the egg or initial bud. Uh, certain studies on regeneration, particularly those dedicated to the freshwater planarian, which is a flatworm, show that the capacity of regeneration comes from the elements that conserve a germinative capacity even when the individual is an adult and that these elements have a kinship with the sexual cells. Nevertheless, the capacity of, a development, of development does not suffice to explain regeneration. Even if we introduce the action of a hypothetical substance like the organism, oh my God, this sentence is never ending. Um, which is meant to explain induction exerted by a terminal element. For example, a head that can be grafted anywhere onto the body of a flatworm. In order for this induction to be carried out, a certain number of secondary elements, uh, secondary elements probably including physical mechanisms and hormonal dynamisms must be presented. Yet above all, after the 
segmentation of the egg, there needs to be the intervention of a principle or organization that, uh, in determination that leads to the production of different organs of the being. Um, so he's again elaborating on this um, functional duality of the individual. Um, so the the same duality that we find in in the distinction between uh, tendencies and drives. Um, so we have the same thing here, where you have the the aspect of the individual insofar as it's um, uh, a portion of the totality of the species, and you have the aspect of the individual insofar as it um, is uh, a bearer of the uh, of the species characteristics um, and something that is capable of reproduction. So that, that first element is, corresponds to the colony stage um, uh, of the organisms that, that have this colony form. Uh, and uh, the second element corresponds to the individual stage of those, of those types of organisms. Um, uh, and then so in, in the, the more individuated organisms, it, it, both of those uh, forms of individuality um, coincide temporarily. Um, but uh, they're still distinguished uh, functionally. And so we have um, the, the individual as uh, um, something that is capable of reproduction uh, has this um, limitation on lifespan. Uh, so it's something that is also capable of dying once it's, um, once it's carried out its reproductive function. But it also, um, at the same time, has the spatial mobility that the um, the colony form of the organism doesn't have. And um, I think he also, at some point in this chapter, talks about the relation between a, a plant and its seed. So the, the plant is um, fixed in the ground, whereas the seed um, travels around. Uh, and, and so the, the, the individual um, form of the plant is the seed, uh, the reproductive organ of the plant. And uh, within the, the first form of the organism, so the, the organism as a portion of the species um, and uh, corresponding to that colony form, we have um, the organization of the individual uh, as um, uh, that it has that internal polarization, so it, it's related to um, its environment in terms of a, a more and less or a, a, a plus and minus um, uh, sign, um, and it has a, a nutritional um, function or a, a nutritive function um, in the sense that it's capable of um, absorbing nutrients from its environment and incorporating them into its organization. Um, so whether that uh, whether that's in the form of plants performing photosynthesis or of other organisms that um, that absorb uh, already existing organic matter and uh, and take on uh, uh, take the nutrients from it, uh, he he brings up this question of um, regeneration of organisms. So um, there are of course many organisms that are capable of regeneration when they're uh, like worms that um, if they're cut in half, both halves will be able to survive and will regenerate um, the missing portion. Uh, and uh, even in vertebrates like lizards or, or frogs um, can sometimes regenerate uh, 
limbs that they lose, or uh, they're they're even lizards that um, have a, a specialized tail that breaks off um, if they get caught by a predator, um, and uh, and then the tail can regrow afterwards. Um, this form of regeneration is related to the capacity for reproduction, um, but it's it's not identical to that capacity for reproduction because Simono wants to make a a strict distinction um, between the reproductive functions of the individual and the the um, what we can call, I guess, the vital functions of the individual. Um, in insofar as they the individual is um, a portion of the species, and um, so he argues that um, the the reproductive the regenerative capacity of uh, um, of the individual, uh, even though it, it has this relationship to the reproductive capacity, it's subordinated in some sense to the general organization of the individual. Um, so if um, if a frog loses its leg, for example, what regrows is a is precisely a leg of that frog um, and not, um, I don't know, an eye or something else. Um, it, it, usually, I, I guess, things can always go wrong. Um, but... Um, yeah, so re regeneration, um, even though it has some sort of um, connection to reproduction, is um, is subordinated to the internal organization of the individual, um, insofar as it's a portion of the species. Whereas reproduction is uh, is external to the individual and and brings about a a, a new individual. So yeah, that that's. Um, he wants to sort of um, resolve this problem point, um, like a, a potential objection to this differentiation of uh, or or distinction between the two um, functions of, of the organism. So the objection would be, you know, if, um, if you say that the there are these two um, distinct functions within the living organism, then why is it the case that um, that regeneration um, has this uh, relationship with reproduction, and and Simon Dong argues that uh, even though this relationship exists, um, it's the the organization of the individual as a, a as a whole that um, determines the the structure of the re regeneration. So it's the individual, insofar as it's a portion of the species, rather than as it's a, um, insofar as it. Um, as it is capable of reproduction that it regenerates. Okay, so let's go on and we can uh, read about barnacled crabs. Um, so I can read the next bit. Uh, I can just find where we are. This principle of spatial determination is what cannot be confused with the principle of production outside of other beings, either by budding or sexual reproduction. Even if certain cells can indistinctly aid the generation of the particular being or generate other beings, even if there is a link between regeneration and reproduction, a difference of orientation intervenes in the manner in which this fundamental activity is carried out, either toward the interior or toward the exterior. This is the very criterion that allows to distinguish pre-individuality from individuality, properly speaking. For in the state of pre-individuality, these two, or two functions are joined together and the same being can be considered as an organism, society, or colony. Reproduction through cisiparity is both a phenomenon of modification of the fragmentary individual's corporeal schema and of reproduction. Budding is still quite partially a mixture of two types of generation, growth and reproduction, properly speaking. 
but when we progress along the animal animal series, this distinction between two generations becoming becomes increasingly clear. On the level of mammals, for example, the distinction becomes so clear that it is compensated by a relation of exteriority between parents and the young, somewhat similar to a parasitic relationship, at first internal and then external, through gestation and then breastfeeding. The female is a being that is capable of being parasited on, and any type of parasiting can create in a male the appearance of female sexual characteristics, as the study of the barnacled crab shows. Everything happens as if the complex forms necessitated a rigorous distinction between the functions of external genesis and those of internal genesis. External genesis or reproduction indeed introduces an amplificative function prominently linked to the operation of individuation. Since it can exist in a continuous regime, simple growth on the contrary belongs to the colony and, not, and does not necessi necessitate individuation. This distinction is made clear by the extremely precocious detachment of the young, instead of developing as a which, instead of developing as a bud, is an independent being, a parasite of the parents, but entirely distinct from it in its internal organization. Gestation corresponds to this anatomical separation compensated by a nutritive relation. The quantity of organized matter that detaches from the body of an uh, of a mammal in order to form an egg is less considerable than what detaches from a bird. Gestation, which makes possible the anatomical separation of the young while maintaining the alimentary relationship, authorizes the slowing of the growth of the young and accentuates fetalization, according to the hypothesis of bulk, which sees in this principle one of the reasons behind evolution. The less rapid maturation of the individual allows it to be dedicated to a longer formation through learning during the time when the nervous centers are still receptive, i.e. before adult age. However, if we consider these various characteristics of vital organizations, we see that the two functions of the individual conserve their distinction, and that this distinction increases when the individual becomes more developed. In a simple vital organization, these functions are antagonistic. They can only be fulfilled successively or entrusted to different forms. When the individual is sufficiently developed, it can guarantee the simultaneous fulfillment of two functions due to a more complete separation of operations relative to each of these functions. Reproduction <clears throat> reproduction then becomes the act of all individuals, all of which also possess the exercise of other functions. The individual is therefore the system of compatibility of these two antagonistic functions that corresponds for the former to the integration into the vital community and for the latter to the amplificative activity of the individual through which it transmits life by generating its young. Internal organization corresponds to another type of being than reproduction. In totally individualized species, reproduction of the actual organization, uh, reproduction and the actual organization are joined together in the same being. Somatic and germinal functions are made compatible in individual existence since the stage of life in colonies have disappeared. So yeah, we have here um, this distinction between internal generation and external generation. And uh, yes, he does describe the crystal as amplificative um, so that there's, uh, there's a the role of the individual um, in this external genesis, in the external genesis or, or reproduction in, in the proper sense, um, correspond as uh, the seed crystal, for example, that um, that brings about the crystallization of the whole supersaturated solution. Yeah, we have this distinction between internal and external genesis, and, and this is what, and to distinguish between pre-individuality and the same being 
can play the role of an organism, society, or colony. And uh, reproduction it often occurs through cisaparity, so through uh, splitting of an individual into two, two or more child individuals. Whereas in the case of the um, in, in the case of the higher organisms or the the more differentiated organisms, um, more individuated organisms have this. Uh, differentiation of the two functions, but at the same time, their their simultaneity, um, so that they they um, they play both roles at the same time, but they're distinct functions. Um, and then we have this bit about um, how in mammals the uh, the distinction between generations is um, is compensated by uh, a relation of exteriority between parents and the young, um, which he compares to a a, a parasitic relationship. So. The way that, uh, and and I think a lot of other people have made this comparison as well. But um, the way that a fetus um, draws nutrition from uh, the the gestating female um, is similar to the way that a parasite draws nutrition from its host. And this um, form of, of parasitism continues even after birth because um, the newborn um, relies on the the mother for um, uh, nutrition as well. So we have this uh, external relationship between the two generations, which um, takes the place of the sort of uh, more internal connection that existed in other um, uh, less individuated organisms. He takes this this instance of um, the this crab that um, where the male can take on female sexual characteristics if um, if they are um, if they're parasitized, um, yeah. So they they uh, the male crabs take on the, these female sexual characteristics. Um, and uh, Angus has posted um, a quote um, about some of the details of how that happens, um, which is interesting. Um, and then there's this bit on um, the way that. Um, in mammals, you have this uh, greater separation between the the parent and and its young, um, um, which is which comes about through this neonization or this um, the way that uh, the growth of the young is is slowed down relative to other types of organisms, um, so that they they spend longer in, in a, um, a fetal state or a, um, a juvenile state. And um, um, so this, there's this um, sort of evolutionary hypothesis that um, this slowing down of, uh, of development or this um, spending more time in the juvenile state um, would lead to um, more complex organisms in a sense that they are capable of learning from their environment um, uh, and uh, incorporating information about what the world is like um, around them in, in a way that um, adult organisms are, are no longer capable of doing or um, organisms that are born or hatch in a form that um, where they they um, are, are sort of more developed um, rather than having this prolonged juvenile state. And then we have this last bit where he he talks about how the individual um, is a system of compatibility between these two antagonistic functions. Um, so the the one 
function that, that corresponds to the integration into the vital community, and then the other function that, that corresponds to the amplificative activity of the individual through which it transmits life by generating its young. So we have, uh, and then the last bit here, that last, um, after the last semicolon, um, he, he introduces the terms somatic and germinal, which um, have sort of been in the background, I think, of what he's been talking about in the last couple of pages. But this is um, a terminology that was introduced by um, August Weismann, who was a, a, a biologist in the late 19th century, 1890s or so, I think, was when he was active. Um, and uh, he was one of the, the first people to... Um, sort of rediscover Mendel's work and uh, try to incorporate it into Darwinism. Uh, to, so to have a, a Mendelian um, uh, understanding of Darwinism. And so he introduces th these terms, um, Soma and German, um, uh, as these two uh, different aspects of the living being. And um, so the Soma is the, the body of the, of the organism so, uh, which is reproduced or re recreated at, at every generation, whereas the the germa the German the, the germinal line um, is potentially immortal. It's uh, the the uh, reproductive cells uh, of an organism are uh, continue in in the offspring of that organism. The that offspring has its own reproductive cells, and so there's this continuous chain of transmission of the reproductive cells. Um, through time and uh so there's this um potentially immortal germ line which at each generation produces um a, a body a, a soma which which carries the uh the germ line um so we have this this same distinction between soma and german is uh is um what simon Don has been describing um in terms of this distinction between the uh the integration into the vital community uh, on the one hand and the um, the uh, amplificative uh, activity of the individual through which it transmits its life by generating its young. Um, so yeah, that's some, some of the background of what he's talking about here. Okay. Um, would someone else like to read the last paragraph of this section, or subsection, I should say? Uh, for these different reasons, we shall distinguish three vital systems. Pure, pre-individual life in which somatic and germinal functions are not distinct, as in certain protozoa and poriferants. Meta-individual forms, in which somatic and germinal functions are distinct, but need to be carried out by a specialization of individual action that involves a specialization of the individual according to somatic or germinal functions. And lastly, totally individualized forms in which the germinal functions are delegated to the same individuals as those that carry out the somatic functions. Then there is no longer colonies, but a community or a society. Transitional forms can be found among these three groups, particularly in insect societies, which are often constituted due to the organic differentiation of the members some of whom are reproducers, soldiers, workers, etc. In certain societies, the age in individual development intervenes as a principle of selection between the different functions that are thereby successively fulfilled. 
which is a principle of unity requiring a lesser complexity of individual structures than when the individual simultaneously fulfills somatic functions and germinal functions. In this sense, we can consider life forms singularly represented by individual beings as equivalent to alternating forms, colony and separate individual, in which the passage to the colony stage would never be produced since the individual generates other individuals instead of founding a colony that will emit separate individuals. In the alternating form, the colony is like the completion of the individual. The individual is younger than the colony, and the colony is the adult state after the individual, which, mutatis mutandis, is comparable to a larva of the colony. From then on, instead of founding the colony, when the individual is reproduced as an individual, the vital functions of continuity, nutrition, growth, functional differentiation, should be fulfilled by a new layer of the individual's behaviors, i.e. social behaviors. Um, so this is a sort of summary of what we've seen in this subsection of uh, these three different, um, what he calls vital systems, but I guess we could think of as three different um, forms of organism. Um, so we have these what he calls pure pre-individual life, um, so that um, these are organisms in which the uh, these two functions, the, the som somatic and germinal functions, are not distinguished. Um, and um, so the same um, being can be regarded either as, a, as an individual or as a member of a colony. Um, it's sort of indifferent one, one way or the other. Uh, and then we have the, the meta-individual forms, um, what he calls meta-individual forms, uh, in which we have distinct somatic and germinal functions, but they are specialized um, to different individuals um, so that, um, um, for instance, uh, um, beings that have uh, a larval form, um, which... Uh, carries out certain functions and then uh, an adult form that, re that uh, reproduces there and there are even there are certain insects where the adult form um, is not even capable of nutrition it doesn't have a mouth or, or digestive organs um, it, the only thing it can do is reproduce and so these are the, the types of organisms that um, that uh, he, he characterizes as meta individuals um, and then the the individuals in the proper sense, the totally individualized forms, are ones um, in which the germinal and somatic functions uh, exist in the same individual, but, um, but they, uh, these individuals, um, they don't reproduce by founding a colony, they, they re reproduce other individuals. And uh, he's thinking primarily here of mammals, I think, but um, uh, we could also point to uh, birds or um, maybe other vertebrates as well. These uh, totally individuated beings, um, they, uh, they sort of keep the individual stage of, uh, of the preceding forms of the, of the meta-individual forms. They keep that individual stage um, without passing to the, the colony stage. And so they, um, they form individuals that that produce new individuals rather than founding a colony and uh, and so the the what it, what corresponds to the the colony stage instead is the 
what what he calls the vital functions of continuity. Um, so nutrition, growth, and functional differentiation, um, which are um, uh, which take take the form of social behaviors in these organisms, um, so that they they're incorporated into the community through their uh, behavior rather than through um, uh, the formation of something like a colony. Okay, so we can go on to the next subsection, which is, um, I think, longer, so we won't be able to finish it today, um, but we can start it at least. Okay, so I'll read the first, uh, the first page or so. Subsection 3, Individuation and Reproduction. The essential function of the living individual qua individual, distinct from a colony, is amplification, discontinuous propagation, for example, with the change of location. It can then be asked, what is at stake in reproduction? Death is the fatal termination of every multicellular organism, but the former results from the latter's functioning and not from an intrinsic property of living matter. For Rabot, the intrinsic property of living matter resides in this incessant process of destruction and reconstruction in accordance with exchanges with the exterior, which constitutes its metabolism. In a unicellular organism, if reconstruction compensated destruction, and assuming that in this process non-assimilated materials did not accumulate to the point of hindering its functioning, the organism would remain indefinitely compar comparable to itself. However, according to Rabot, this illusion of the immortal individual nearly corresponds to a mental construction. Two facts modify the individual. The first is that metabolism is effectuated in constantly changing conditions. New masses of protoplasm identical to the preceding masses do not necessarily result from the reconstruction of living matter. Hence, not only the quantity and quality of the materials in question, but also the natures of the external influences vary incessantly. The second fact is that the rapport between the elements of which the individual mass consists change depending on their influences and their change sometimes leads to a sort of disequilibrium. This particularly includes the nucleoplasmic rapport, i.e. the one established between the bulk of the nucleus and the cytoplasm. This is the rapport that regulates reproduction. Rabot wants to show that the reproduction of the individual does not introduce any finality and is explained in a purely causal manner. It is necessary to study this explanation in order to appreciate the extent to which the disequilibrium that causes death differs from the disequilibrium that causes reproduction. For it, is not sorry, for it is necessary to note that the profound modification that affects the individual in reproduction is not the same as death. Even if the individual loses its identity through a splitting into two individuals of equal size, it becomes other since two individuals now replace the single individual, but it does not die. No organic matter decomposes, there is no cadaver, and the continuity between the single individual and the two individuals to which it has given birth is complete. Here there is not an end, but a transformation of the topology of the living being that makes two individuals appear instead of one. Rabot establishes the fact that it is only the value of the nucleoplasmic rapport that makes the cell divide into two independent parts without an intervention of a mysterious influence, despite the cell's volume. An analysis of reproduction in metazoans allows us to clearly confirm this fact due to the relative anatom anatomical simplicity of the individuals that constitute them. Schizogony takes place as a cellular division. The individual divides into two equal or unequal parts, and each part, having become independent, constitutes a new individual. With multiple variations, the nucleus traverses a series of ordinary phases that consists of its division into fragments, chromosomes, 
barely distinct in protozoa, then the division of these chromosomes and their separation into two equal groups, and finally the splitting of the cytoplasm transversely for infusoria and longitudinally for flagellates. Each of the two individuals becomes complete. Each regenerates a mouth, a flagellum, and so on. In other cases, the individual first secretes a layer of cellulose within which it divides into a series of individuals considerably reduced in size. And these individuals either resemble the initial individual or are different from it, but each of them afterwards rapidly resumes its specific aspect. Schizogony consists in the fact that the individual multiplies in isolation without the intervention of the fertilizing action of another individual of the same species. Right. Um, yeah, so Angus was posted in the chat here uh, a comment about reproduction. So, so he says, uh, it seems like in reproduction, everything is preserved, whereas in death, something is lost. So something like autonomy would be an intermediate case where, for example, a lizard's tail is lost, even though the lizard regenerates the tail. Yeah, that sounds right to me. So what distinguishes what, what distinguishes the the reproduction of unicellular organisms from death is precisely that there is no um, there's no uh, uh, body left behind, and um, uh, so nothing nothing decomposes, uh, and the the two um, the two cells that result from the split are. Uh, in continuity with the uh, the one cell that preceded the split. In the case of the, the lizard that um, uh, loses its tail, so the reason why it's not reproduction is precisely because that tail does decompose. It, it's, uh, the tail uh, dies after being separated from the, the lizard. So it, it's not reproduction because the the tail doesn't um, doesn't regrow a, a, a remaining body um, in a way that um, some worms can regrow uh, the rest of the body if if they're cut in half, for example. Yeah, so that that's why the the lizard that loses its tail is not a case of reproduction. So uh, yeah, I'm just thinking now. Not not too sure if this would be um, an intermediate case. Well, I guess insofar as one side, uh, like the the rest of the body of the lizard, um, is capable of regrowing a tail, it it's um, similar in some sense to the the case of the worm that can be cut in half. Yeah, in insofar as the tail um, dies and is not uh, viable on its own, um, it it wouldn't correspond to to that. I wonder what point he's making about death in the beginning of the paragraph, where he says, death is the fatal termination of every multicellular organism, but the former results from the latter's functioning and not from an intrinsic property of living matter. I guess I take the, I take the former to be death and the latter to be the multicellular organism. And it's interesting, it seems like he, what he's trying to say is death does not come from something proper to matter itself or to living matter itself but has to do with the functioning of the organism. I guess maybe reading this against like Freud on the death drive and you know the discussion from earlier where I think Freud wants to say something like you know there is this property in living matter that it's that it kind of tends towards death. It tends towards a kind of dissolution or you know breakdown or disequilibrium or whatever. I wonder if Simon Don here maybe is challenging that point. Not really sure how to read this. Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion. Um, 
this this idea or the the thesis that he's presenting here that that death is uh, is not is not an intrinsic property of living matter um, is what he's going to what he goes on to illustrate when he talks about these um, unicellular organisms. So um, we we have we can uh, we know that um, death is not uh, a, a property of living matter as such because there are many living organisms actually probably most living organisms uh, because most most organisms are are unicellular uh, these organisms don't die in the proper sense of the term they uh, they simply split and and reproduce themselves through splitting and and so it's it's the organization or the functioning of a multicellular organism that that leads it to die um, rather than anything intrinsic to living matter uh, as such is it's possible that he is thinking of Freud here because yeah Freud does argue that there's um, the the death drive is something like a um, uh, tendency of living matter to return to an in, inorganic or a, a non-living state um, and he, he argues that this is a, an inherent tendency in in living matter um, and so Simon is is whether he's actually specifically intending to direct this against Freud, uh, I'm not sure, but he, he is definitely um, uh, presenting a counter thesis to to Freud's thesis. Yeah, it's, I would say that it's um, it's hard to um, hard to argue against this idea here um, that that death is not essential to um, to living beings insofar as they're living. That is. Um, yeah, and Alyosha has also commented that th there is no such thing as living matter um, for Simon Dong. Um, yeah, so he wants to distinguish living beings from non-living beings, not insofar as they would be composed of something different, a different kind of material or something, but uh, insofar as they're organized differently. Um, so I think when he talks about living matter here, he's just talking about matter insofar as it's organized in a living being by... Yes, you're you're right that he doesn't um, think that we need to posit something like a a living uh, a living matter, um, which would be distinct from non-living matter. And this was um, uh, a subject of, of a lot of debate in in the early 20th century, where there was there were vitalist biologists who um, who did uh, argue that we needed to uh, posit something like a, a living matter as um, distinct from non-living matter. They tended to draw on um, the the differentiation of uh, of an egg in development. Um, so embryology was was sort of the the I guess paradigm science of uh, of vitalism in the early twentieth century. So you have an egg which is undifferentiated, which takes on um, a differentiated form. Uh, in development, it also uh, they also pointed to the way that um, the egg has, um, if you intervene in the process of development, if you, for example, cut off a, a portion of the of the egg in the early stages of development, then the it, it's not as if um, the organism will develop like missing a portion of its body or something like that. Um, instead, you have the the egg. Uh, sort of reforms without that missing portion and differentiates itself again, um, and uh, and so you end up with the same organism, maybe just smaller, um, but uh, the the differentiation of the organism into its different organs and and um, systems is still the same. 
So there's a a, a sort of um, well, they took this to be um, a sort of uh, finality um, uh, as an inherent property of living matter. So it, it's uh, it's oriented towards a goal of producing uh, an organism with a certain structure, uh, and it's capable of sort of taking a detour if uh, if there's an obstacle or an intervention in the usual path of uh, of generation uh, of that goal of that end state. And, and so they took this to the, the vitalist took this to be um, an inherent property of living matter that it would have this um, finality or, or goal oriented nature um, as opposed to um, non-living matter which has a purely um, uh, causal uh, um, structure uh, it, it can only receive um, impulses from without but yeah so Simon Dao is is not um, uh, is not sort of taking up that vitalist uh, um, position, um, but I think he, I think he is to some extent um, uh, appreciative of some sort of vitalism, like we saw a little bit earlier um, when he criticizes uh, a certain vitalism. He's he's quite careful to say that um, this is a, a sort of misuse of vitalism or. Um, um, uh, a mistake that vitalism can make, but doesn't is not a, a necessary consequence of vitalism. So, yeah, I think Simon Don wants to sort of find a way of taking those ideas from vitalism, but without having to posit something like a, a living matter as distinct from non-living matter. Um, and and there's this uh, a sort of reflection of this vitalism versus uh, mechanism debate um, just sort of in passing in, in this passage here when he says um, Rabot wants to show that the reproduction of the individual does not introduce any finality and is explained in a purely causal manner. So uh, Rabot here is taking a, a mechanist position which would explain reproduction in terms of the causal um, uh, impact on the organism. So the presence of certain chemical substances would would bring about the splitting of a cell, for example, or, or certain environmental conditions surrounding uh, the individual would bring about the, the split and, and bring about reproduction, uh, something along those lines, rather than having reproduction being something that is uh, goal-oriented. So yeah, that's that's what the what is... Um, behind that little sort of aside um, that Simon Dahl makes there. Okay, so I think we have time to read one more of these big paragraphs, um, and uh, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Uh, so I think we're at um, On the Contrary, if I'm not mistaken. On the contrary, in still other cases, multiplication only begins after the union of two individuals. Depending on the milieu, this conjugation or pairing can be temporary, as an in infusoria. After interlocking on a portion of their surface, the two individuals exchange a pronucleus with each of their partners, and then they separate and multiply through simple division. In these infusoria, the two modes of reproduction, gamogeny and schizogeny, uh, alternate according to the conditions of the milieu. Furthermore, in gamogeny, uh, the two individuals are perfectly similar. Neither can be qualified as male or female. The conjugation can also lead to the fusion not only, uh, not only of two pronuclei, 
but also of two whole individuals that are in a state of total fusion, at least for a while. It is furthermore quite difficult to say if the individuality of two beings that fuse is conserved. In fact, their nucleus undergoes two successive divisions. All the products of division degenerate, except one. The remaining two non-degenerated products of the two nuclei fuse, but this mutual nucleus immediately divides, and the fused mass in turn divides and produces two new complete individuals. Would there be a conservation of the individual identity of two infusoria in the non-degenerated masses of nuclei at the moment of the fusion of two nuclei? It is, hard to just, it is hard to answer this question. This example is taken from the case of the actinophorid. Fusion uh, can be even more complete in the amoeba, particularly in Sapinia diploidea, uh, which normally possesses two nuclei. The nuclei of each individual and then the two individuals fuse together, but each nucleus divides separately while losing a part of its substance. Then the rest of the nuclei gather together away from the rest of the nucleus of the other individual without fusing. A single binuclear individual forms in this way and then multiplies. In this case, the nucleus of each individual, of each initial individual remains, or rather the rest of this nucleus in the individuals that arise from multiplication through the division of the intermediary binuclear individual. Male and female cannot be distinguished in this procedure. Right, so we're, we're sort of going through the different possible forms of uh, reproduction that can occur in different, different types of organisms. And so here we have um, um, the case of infusoria, which... Um, uh, reproduce in in multiple different ways. So there's um, um, schizogony, which um, which is just the splitting of a single individual and and uh, the formation of, of two um, daughter individuals from the parent individual. And then gamogony, which is when you have two individual cells, two individual uh, infusoria that. Um, that fuse um, and and then split, uh, so that um, there is some sharing of uh, and sort of re um, re uh, structuring of genetic material between the the two individuals, um, and um, so they they fuse together um, and then they split twice um, to form. Uh, four um, daughter individuals out of the two initial individuals, and um, depending on the the species of the uh, of the infusoria that that are um, under discussion here, so depending on the species, they uh, they sometimes um, the the nucleus um, uh, the nuclei of the two individuals will fuse, and sometimes the the nucleus remains. Um, remain separate um, and so it's it's hard to decide or determine whether whether the the two individuals that that fuse um, preserve their individuality or not um, in, in some cases it seems like they they're completely fused and um, they they don't have any um, individuality remaining and then they they split twice to form four new individuals 
um, in other cases, it seems like there is um, some sort of uh, uh, differentiation that remains um, um, behind uh, that that doesn't fully um, fuse in in that case. But uh, so in, in the case of these amoeba, you have the the cell nuclei which contain the the genetic material um, that um, that fuse together. Um, and, and then each nucleus um, divides uh, separately. So um, they, um, uh, and then a, um, a single individual uh, forms in this way and then multiplies. So you have uh, alternation between um, the, the formation of a, a fused individual through gamogony um, and then the formation of, a, of other individuals um, that uh, are split from the initial individuals. Um, so you have both forms of reproduction that that occur uh, in the same species. Uh, and then one one sort of final uh, point that Simondo makes that's important here is that um, in this homogeny of infusoria, there's no distinction between male and female. So that you have, you have two individual infusoria that are basically the same. They they have no structural differentiation, and they they fuse together and then split up into new individuals. Um, so you don't have, um, it's not sexual reproduction, in, properly speaking, because there's no um, uh, differentiation between the, the two individuals. Okay, so I think we can probably end here for today, and we'll pick up from the top of 191 uh, next time, and we'll learn all about amoeba and uh, different types of uh, cells and uh, the way that they reproduce. Yeah, so thank you everyone for... Uh, questions and contributions and for showing up today and uh, see you all next week.